Amen. Let's pray again and ask the Lord's blessing on this time of of teaching and instruction. And I pray great encouragement for us all. Gracious Father, it, it is truly an amazing thing that we as mere dust and creatures have the indescribable privilege to open your word and to receive from the throne of heaven through your very voice the instruction that can bring and does bring through the means of the grace of Christ great liberty, great joy, great peace, a great restoration of the order that you ordained for the family, for man and wife, husband, wife, fathers, children. So Father, I pray today, and may you rise, O Lord, and dispel the enemies that would seek to disrupt, discourage, that would seek to destroy what you have ordained and attempt to again usurp what Christ brings in order and in glory to his name. So thank you, Father, for this this time and may it be blessed and anointed by your Holy Spirit himself. To the praise of your name, Father, for the good of your church, And for the advancement of your glorious eternal kingdom, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wives, be subject to your husbands. If that doesn't start a controversy in today's culture, I don't know what one simple statement will do. It may be even shocking to some here. It it, It certainly is in the world around us, and so much so that typically most people don't go on and read the finish, the last part of the verse of the sentence. But just the idea of being subject to or submitting to one another flies in the face of of the darkened culture that's around us, because we see in our even in our very own natures, there is a ongoing pursuit of autonomy. And we see it even coming in our means of transportation that we're not even going to be able to drive our own cars, but in greater measure, greater importance, that nature within us still seeks to be autonomous, to strive to have its own way, to exalt itself before God, saving, saved by the grace and the mercy and the work of Jesus Christ. But we can't be too naive, though. This, this, Resistance to submission has been in every culture. I mean, Paul was addressing it here. And we know, I believe we know, where it all comes from. And that's where I want to begin today. I want to turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Because I want this to be a basis primarily to bring about our joy and exaltation of Christ And what he has done for us through the gospel and 
Not specifically that he always promises a perfect marriage. There, there is no such thing this side of the fall. He promises life, transformation of the heart. And in that, we can enjoy the relationship of husband and wife because it exalts him. It typifies his work. So let's go back to Genesis 2. We're going to start in verse 218. And notice there it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make him a helper suitable for him. Man was alone. God himself said and determined that it was not good for him to be alone. And it was unsuitable for him to be alone in his creation. So God himself steps in and says, I will make him a helper suitable for him, meaning that what God creates for Adam will correspond to him. This this helper, this helpmate, the Hezer in Hebrew is one who bears the same resemblance or likeness. And, and this word conveys the very same image or meaning as of Yahweh's relationship to Israel. For it is through the woman that God saves man from his solitude and creation. But first, God in his, his supreme wisdom reveals to man his own need. And he does this in verses 19 and 20. He says, out of the, out of the ground... The Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And if we could step back and take a peek in this whole process of the Lord God bringing the animals to Adam for his naming, I'm sure there was a very cognizant awareness of Male, female, male, female, male, female. But Adam did not find, he did not see any creature suitable for himself. Continuing on, verse 21, So the Lord God again intervenes, and he caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And what we'll, be, what we'll see, and we know from Genesis 12 and on in the covenant with Abraham, he did a similar work with Abraham, putting him to sleep. We see the divine intervention. Even within the sinless creation at this time, a divinely ordered and induced sleep that restrains human involvement, that hides human observation. And, and in this mysterious work, the Lord God draws out in such a a poetic flavor, the beauty of the relation of man and wife. This, this is not to be read as some, some clinical operation or some limited feature of man's anatomy, but, but bringing forth of this divinely reciprocal engagement and bond brought forth from the man's flesh by God himself. I, I know I'm sure many of you are familiar with Matthew Henry's commentary on this and and how he explains this this divine operation if you will he says speaking of of the woman not made out of his head to top him not out of his feet to be trampled on by him but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved and then in verse 22 we see the lord god fashioned into a woman, Isha, 
the rib which he had taken from the man Ish and brought her to the man. God is the potter. God is the builder. The woman here becomes the first being that is created from another living thing taken from the man and having her her full dependence upon the creative work of the Lord God. And critical and so important for us to see here is that it is the Lord God who brings her to the man, introduces her to him, fulfills his need. And even as they are one, they are still ever so dependent upon their creator and sustainer. It it is a God designed, a God created, a a God ordained union And this union far supersedes a mere contractual agreement or obligation. For God is at the head of this marriage union. And because especially of who it typifies, which we'll get to. And in bringing the woman to the man, there, there breaks forth this, this, again, this, this ecstasy in a poetic fashion in both the substance and the grammar here. And as this first marriage union is revealed, the relationship characterized by harmony, by order, and by intimacy, being bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, the man, he declares rightly that they are equal in nature. But in this declaration, we see that there is with the woman a heart of divine submission, a harmonious subjection of the woman to the man as he himself declares his administration of love and care over her, and then in the narrative of the Lord God, emphasizing the power and even the law of this union, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in the purity and the innocence of the garden, they were both naked and did not know shame or embarrassment. And then we read, over an undisclosed period of time, maybe even immediately with now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? This, this serpent appears, this snake, created by God, Yet being within that classification of animals that we see in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 is as distinctly considered the, the archetypal unclean animal. It's reinstilled a, a renewed hatred of my own for snakes. But it is the obvious candidate for the anti-Lord symbol. The tempter in the likeness of a serpent craftily makes his entrance into the garden. But note, it's not with a simple, innocent question, but one really with an expression of shock and surprise, grossly questioning and exaggerating God's prohibition and deceptively challenging his supremacy and goodness. And it's in this first conversation about God found in Scripture where the serpent were lacking any reference to Yahweh, simply in, in, in sort of a, a demeaning, ordinary reference as Elohim. He completely distorts and adulterates this pure, loving, protective command given by Yahweh Elohim to the man and the woman. And it purposefully works to corrupt and usurp this divine order 
in this godly marriage union. And now as the central scene in the garden, it reaches its climax, even, even though the serpent challenges the sovereignty and the command of God and, and his conversation directed to the woman who is both the weaker vessel and the one with great appeal that these final fatal steps of deception, this allurement away from the truth of the command of God and his providence into a lie, these final steps are ascribed to the woman. She saw, she took, and she gave. In an instant, inverting the ordained roles of this marriage union, The husband listening to the wife rather than to the Lord God. The woman listening to the creature rather than to the husband. This desire to have insight, to embrace the deception of the anti-Lord, to believe a lie rather than an ultimate life-giving command. The deception was invited, the lie was received, was believed, and was shared and in eating, the last and decisive act of disobedience was consummated. Their eyes were open. Sin entered the creatures made in the image of God. No longer innocent. No longer enraptured by the presence of the Lord God, but rather ashamed, hiding, and, and fearful, condemned by their own judgment. And what ensued next with the sound, the, the kole, the voice of, and the call of the Lord God coming near them in the garden. We know a familiar in, in our study in biblical theology, the ruach, the breathing of wind calling man to give an account, to come out and explain their behavior. God all the time knowing very well what has occurred. But we see their very futile attempts to bury their sin to hide their disobedience from the voice of the Lord God, striking their consciences. But whatever the meager attempts were to hide behind these flimsy leaves, the examining light of the Lord God calls out, Where are you? The results, the the outcome of the Lord's God's curse, and the judgment of this wicked violation and intrusion upon his holy mount are manyfold. The first to note, the Lord God only cursed the serpent and the ground. The serpent receiving the full and direct pronouncement of crawling on the ground, eating dust to be pursued by a man, separated from other creatures in abject humiliation, and ultimately to receive the full crushing weight through the judgment of the seed the Son of Man, who will crush the head of this serpent, crushing his authority, his thinking, his kingdom. As we know, well, he represents Satan, the anti-Lord. But keep in mind, too, that in this, we see that this seed of woman will bring this redemption, this restoration, this life through Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And it's in these sentences of judgment upon the woman and the man as a result of their sin that I want to look at a little bit more closely. We are going to get to Colossians, I promise you, but I want this to be a a solid backdrop to give us greater understanding of the worth that Christ has done for us. For the woman was created from the man to be man's helper and in their union to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. And now with this judgment for the woman comes the accompaniment of pain and anguish and childbirth 
And in pregnancy, it's greatly multiplied, even to the point of death, as we saw with Rachel as she bore Benjamin. Several commentators agree that prior to the fall, the woman likely would not have suffered much pain, if any at all. But we don't know the fullness, the extents of the types of physiological changes that occurred when sin entered creation. And along with this judgment is a slightly more difficult statement to grasp, that of verse 16, still in in, in chapter 3. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I think this verse carries with it a a twofold aspect of, of seeing how deeply how deep sin infested and disrupted this marriage union. One aspect is that with sin's intrusion in usurping this divine order and the willing submission by the woman, there's now a perverted subjugation from love to cherish and cherish to desire and dominate. We see this in relationships today where women are exploited and and in abusive relationships, and in the darkness of this relationship, with its impact on the mind and the emotions and the will, there is this deceptive, ongoing desire to yet remain under this abusive rule of her husband. And the second aspect that follows a very logical course with the Scriptures, especially in line with Genesis 4-7, it implies that the woman's urge is not a craving for whatever her husband demands, but more of an urge to rule over and to, and to have independence over him. This is what we see paralleled very closely in Genesis 4-7, where the Lord God speaking to Cain about sin at the door and its desire for you. Here the woman's desire is for independence, or more specifically, a desire to possess and control the man. But contrasted here with an injunction to man to master over her. And with these words, this curse, this result, excuse me, not this curse, but this judgment, these words mark the beginning of what we know as the battle of the sexes. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must work and strive for his proper loving headship. Sin has so deeply corrupted the natures, both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. The woman's sinful desires to control her husband, to usurp his appointed headship, even to set unreasonable expectations and demands upon him. And yet he must master her if he can, so the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle with with tyranny and with domination. Adam's judgment was even longer and extensive given the fact that he bore the greatest responsibility. He was severely lacking in his duty and his call and his role. He was to follow the instruction of the Lord God that, were, that was directly and personally given to him. He should have crushed the head of the serpent, but instead he followed his wife's advice, and, which was tainted and conveyed by the anti-Lord's deception. And in what may be the the first use of of Adam, the Lord God directs his punishment first toward that what he eats. Five times eating is referred to, and as a result now, the toil that is behind the preparation of every meal, the tilling, the cultivating of a land now cursed, 
the seeding, the protecting, the weeding, the waiting, the harvesting, the preparation, all a part of the painful memory and the abundance of the food that was provided freely in the garden, which required probably minimal toil and likely very little sweat. Not that Adam's original garden work was a curse, no. Work is a divine blessing we are called to. But the toil behind it and within it is a reminder to us of the extent of the curse due to sin. And at the culmination of this section in Genesis 3, we see everything in the judgments here contributing to this elucidation of that theme of death. The final outcome of sin and to dust you shall return. All of these judgments will be a part of every man and woman and child at the moment of birth until he returns to the ground because of this first sin. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. And this sin nature we all share in from birth impacts the very fundamental relationships that Paul is instructing us in Colossians. The first and greatest need is of the restoration of the soul. We go back to Colossians 3 now. Paul has been exhorting these saints in Colossae and to us, and it is for us to understand that all of these profound and spiritual principles that are bound up in what it means for believers to have died and been raised to life through their relationship with Christ, now he begins to apply them, and very specifically to the range of relationships that we may have and share in. But to reemphasize and order our understanding of this necessary foundation in all these relationships, I want to look quickly again back at chapter 3, verse 1, to look at Christ what he brings through his salvation to the eternal life that he bestows on us, how the necessity of the daily gospel reality is to be at work in our lives for our relationships with one another to flourish, to be peaceful, to be joyous, to be growing in Christ. First, we see Christ who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, who is now exalted, he who has been resurrected, he who is now returned, ascended at the Father's right hand, seated in a position of accomplished authority on our behalf. His exaltation accomplished through the perfection of his finished work, thus sending his spirit to wash, to regenerate, to restore the creature, his precious elect returning them to the Father through himself, granting to us a restoration into true humanity, renewing us to a holy, a godly, and proper order, ultimately renewing harmony and joy and function of duty in our relationships within the the broader church and especially within the family. He brings new life. He brings vitality to his bride, and and the fruit of this will we will see will be revealed in the very basic, very most intimate relationships in this world, where the surest exposure of the desires and the devotions of the heart are made manifest in that long-established societal unit of the family between husband and wife and children. And second, a a very powerful reality for us to continually, daily, 
meditate upon and remind ourselves is that we have both been crucified with Christ and are now experiencing his gift of resurrection life. Redemptive life, eternal life, knowing him, communing with him, savoring him, delighting in him, exploring the riches of his treasures and wisdom. And in our remembrance of this monergistic work, to remember that it is of God and from God for us, just as it was for Adam. And when at that moment in time, when our hearts were open to the gospel, when darkness was peeled away, peeled back to the person and the salvific work of Christ, where our, we acknowledged our sin and received this very precious gift of God and gifts of faith and repentance that come through Christ, crying out for the Lord to save us in the most blessed work that he alone accomplished on the cross on our behalf. And through the work of God's righteous power, making us a part of him and a part of his body, of fellow redeemed brothers and sisters and friends here on earth, his church. And in this church, we saw how he has gifted us with his spirit, his grace, and with promises that are irrevocable even though now we see in a mirror dimly and know and experience only in part, we do know that one day we will fully know when he is revealed and we are revealed with him. What a true taste of glory divine, a foretaste it is. Third reality for us is that this is who and what we should be daily setting our minds upon. If it is true that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of his Father, if it is true that we are one with him, if it is true that we are therefore part of Christ's new creation, then Paul's point to us, very simply put, we need to start living like it. Christ must inevitably color and control our relationships with everyone and, and, and infiltrate every aspect of our lives. We need to live, live as if we were in intimate union with Christ. We need to live as though we, were, we are a part of his new creation. Not succumbing to that which is earthly, but rather to pursue and live out the very life and power of the gospel. The lordship of Christ in our hearts, in our affections, in our relationships, in our families. And this, this is the picture Paul has been painting for us in this this sweeping vision, if you will, of what the Christian life looks like. What we saw beginning back in in verse 5 of chapter 3, and it's going to continue to chapter 4, verse 6. But Paul, he's reminding us, and in a way asking us with the use of his imperatives, based on all that Christ has done and who we are in him, do you really understand the gospel? Do you really understand what it means to be knit together as one with Christ? Do you really understand what it means to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and what the Lordship of Christ in your life is all about? If you do, and since you do, then these truths, these realities, have a very real and practical implication of how we live our lives. And in our study of these gospel, doctrinal, scriptural truths in Colossians, we now come to verse 18. We're only going to go to verse 19 today, but looking at wives and husbands, which many of you are here today. But if you're not, 
if you are single, yet to be married, please don't tune out. These relationships are for you too because it typifies, it speaks of your relationship with Christ as members of his bride and as members of his church. So Paul turns his attention from a broader aspect of all the relationships within the body of Christ in that broader statement of verse 17. Whatever you do or everything that you do, he now focuses in on these very specific relationships. F.F. Bruce has a really powerful statement that I want to quote here and, and use out of his commentary on Colossians. He says, talking about all these summaries of domestic responsibilities, both here in Colossians and Ephesians 5, he says, the inclusion of such summaries of domestic responsibilities, it has been said, shows a sense of the values of ordinary family life. What a gross misunderstatement that is. He says, It is in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's Christian profession will normally be manifest, if at all. In the most closest and familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's Christian profession will normally be manifest, if at all. If I were to ask you, where do you, where do we find the pulse, or what could be called the, the heartbeat of the Christian life? As, as good and as great and necessary are, are all the experiences and challenges of studying necessary doctrine, biblical theology, systematic theology, covenant theology, of pursuing seasons of mountaintop experiences with the Lord, even even enduring unimaginable hardships in the proclamation and promotion of the gospel, of even great feats of spiritual discipline or having even a cutting-edge ministry, even as all of these are well and good, especially done in the name and for the glory of Christ, the very pulse is found in the daily living. and very particularly in the most intimate family and familiar relationships. Because we're no more godly in all of these various experiences and in any manner of life than we are in the most familiar relationships, in the daily grind, in the midst of the mundane. This is where the reality of one's Christian profession will be manifest, if at all. And in the entirety of this letter, and especially in this section, it's it's simple, I hope it's simple for us to see that Paul's grand theme here to grasp, especially in this section, is emphasized in the supremacy and in the lordship of Jesus Christ. He introduced us back in verse 1, the Lord seated at the right hand of God. We looked at the lordship over the church and over the body of Christ and in our relationship and putting off and putting on putting off the vices, putting on his graces, and through our communal sanctification. But now Paul continues this theme theme into these very fundamental relationships, qualifying the phrase with the phrase, in the Lord or to the Lord, multiple times, and even using master. And he applies this directly to the common household. A typical household in his time, 
one that focused on the, the man as he stood in these three relationships, his husband with the wife, father to the children, master over his servants. Somewhat different to today, but not completely. Because it shows a man's closest, most familiar relationships. And this is why Paul takes it down to the most intimate level in emphasizing the Lordship of Christ. And clearly Paul is also saying in this, the Lordship of Christ must be evident here or to claim him as Lord is meaningless. So he begins here, verse 18, with with a, a combination of these reciprocal exhortation and these commands and with very good reasons. And he starts with the wives. Wives, be subject to or submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ladies, and in, in particular the wives, since these are Paul, who Paul is addressing, when you read and consider what he is commanding, you have to be careful not to read into this. You need to think in terms of attitude of the heart. A particular attitude is in focus here and not servitude. Paul's use of the verb here, hupotasso, here is not a direct command to obey as he instructs later with the children and with the servants. But in a broader meaning, this this verb here means it is a submission involving recognition of an ordered structure to whom appropriate respect is shown. Let me say that again. It is a submission, an attitude, but a submission involving recognition of an ordered structure to whom appropriate respect is shown. Paul is not saying anything here about who's boss of the home, even though in our culture, our culture interprets it this way. And some men even latch onto this, banging their chest and grunting that they're king of their kingdom and they demand obedience, but that's not what is being said here for either wife or the husband. The principle of authority and submission in the marriage relationship is found throughout the New Testament, and we see it in 1 Corinthians 11.3. It says, Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman. And this is the ordered structure given by God. Remember Genesis 2. But here in Colossians, there are two critical, two crucial meanings here that Paul is revealing to us. As I said, first, it is an attitude. It is a heart attitude of the wife. And what is this attitude that Paul is describing here in this verb? It's for the wife to recognize and embrace the full reality that it is God who has given her husband a specific role in the marriage, in their relationship, in their reunion, a role that he's not given to her. God has provided a specific responsibility and role for the husband that is to provide spiritual leadership in the home. And in this, the wives are called to submit, to voluntarily put themselves under that authority or the direction of their husband. Just as they are the living testimony or type of the bride of Christ, who Paul says in Ephesians 5.22 and, and following verses, is to submit to Christ, to willingly submit as Christ himself humbled himself in complete submission to his own Father. This, this is to be the hard attitude of the redeemed wife. Because in this phrase, we see the imperfect form of this verb, meaning 
that we see the reason now for this command that it, it is as is fitting in the Lord or as it should be in the Lord, which reaches back to the point of the wife's conversion of who she is now in Christ as one who has died with Christ and is new and alive because of his transforming, reordering of the heart. And she's now enabled by the grace of Christ, given a willing nature and an attitudinal commitment to submit to the one she's been united with in marriage and in life, under God and in Christ. Loving her husband? Yes, absolutely. Submitting to her husband as a spiritual leader? Yes. But above and beyond her heart is owned by Christ, and he is her ultimate master. The only one who can both restore the proper marriage relationship and enable it in this life by a daily means of grace. And yes, for the wives, it also means in the midst of your husband's imperfections and his ongoing sanctification, it means laying down your own personal expectations and demands upon him, yet trusting him fully and prayerfully to Christ and his work. You know, if I could share a testimony, I've shared this with you, with some some of you several times maybe. Um... I'm a testimony of that. My wife, for decades, quietly submitted to me in the midst of my rebellion and sin, professing to be a saint, a Christian. But her prayerful, willful submission, even in my wickedness, it got me. Without a word, the Lord God moved and answered her prayers. So I praise God for that. That's a living testimony for all all of us to glean from and learn from. Not to my glory, it's the glory of Christ alone. Let's look briefly at 1 Peter 3, 1-2, at his teaching on godly living in the home. It says there, 1 Peter 3, and in the same way, what, what does he mean by in the same way as what? As Christ, who submitted himself fully to the Father, his will and his commands, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. It, it is a, a, a beautiful thing to see even in the midst of, of unsaved spouses, saved spouses married to unsaved spouses, to see the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ in that marriage over the children, to bring peace in the home, to bring encouragement and strength to the saved spouse. This is a testimony of, of his grace in that. But being submitted to the Lord, even in the midst of those kind of relationships, I pray for the husband's hearts, maybe even for the wives too. (laughs) The Lord gets a hold of them. Continuing on, note Paul did not provide any conditional statements or say, as long as the husband does this or that. However, we know that what is implied by the earlier section of this paragraph of what we are to put off 
that the wife is free from submission to her husband should the husband ever lead her into sin or to violate her conscience. But there are no conditional statements found in this command for the redeemed wife to be subject to submit her for her qualification is as is fitting in the Lord. Second meaning here to bear in mind along with keeping in mind is it is an attitude and not servitude. Second thing is wives must also keep in mind Paul is speaking here about a role as a wife and not her value. Her role as a wife and not her value. There's nothing here to do with, with, with a measure of value or, or inferiority. We see this clearly in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we can see this even in a greater aspect by looking at God himself in the Trinity, in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one being, and we can say rightly that they are co-equal, they are co-eternal. Yet we know that it is the second person of the Trinity that took on flesh, that became man, and, and in his being made in the likeness of man, And in his season of time as the incarnate Son of God, he willingly subjected himself, willingly submitted himself to the full and complete will of the Father. Yet he was always equal with the Father. So in this context, subjection has nothing to do with value. To have subjection and headship and to recognize equality in terms of value, these concepts are not antithetical. We see this in God's essence and what he has intended and provided for in this basic context of the home where God has entrusted the husband with a specific responsibility to provide spiritual leadership. This has nothing to do with value, but it has to do with the order that God himself has established, declared to be very good, and now through Christ, through those who are in Christ, he can reestablish the proper order in this godly relationship. It is of great value in the home, in the marriage, in the lives of the church, and, and throughout the family, and even into the world. So wives, please keep these two truths in mind to think and live in terms of attitude, not servitude, in your role and not your value. And again, Paul reinforces this command with a qualifier, with a reason, a glorious reason, a reason of reality and gratitude as is fitting in the Lord. And again, just just reemphasizing the blessed Lordship of Christ who enables you to voluntarily submit to your husbands in that reciprocal role entrusted to your husband in the home is a matter of your relationship to Christ, not to your husband. So for your wives, yet to be wives, as the Lordship of Christ is brought so very close in your lives, as you look away from yourselves and look to the Lord, He is the one enabling you to submit to your husband. And consider this also. I was talking to one of the brothers about this the other day. This is what the wives will be held accountable to. Will it be at Christ's coming, will it be gold, silver, precious stones of willing submission? something to think about. Husbands, listen up, brothers. I've got my ears on too. (laughs) 
Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Agapao. This is a sincere love we are to have for our our wives and to live out toward our wives. It is a God-given love. It is to regard with great affection and great concern. It is a self-sacrificial love. This is emphasized clearly by Paul in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. There it is it for us in clear, vivid, doctrinal, scriptural color. A selfless act of getting, giving out of love for His bride, for His church, for His people. Out of love, Christ assumed our humanity with all of its weaknesses, all of its infirmities. Out of love, Christ exchanged His crown of glory for a crown of thorns. And out of love, He was hungry. And brothers, he knew what it was to be tired. And his sojourn earth, sojourn here on earth was out of love. Out of love, he was sorrowful unto death, expending himself for others. Out of love, willingly nailed to a cursed tree where he bore our sin and our shame. This is what Paul is drawing our full attention to, brothers, what it means to love our wives in a self-sacrificial manner by fixing our minds and hearts upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself, all that he has done, how he gave and emptied himself for his own bride. And Paul gives us a reason for this. And it is given to us by a follow-up command that is, that is actually a negative counterpart. Look again at the last part of verse 19. And do not be embittered against them. Do not be embittered against them. Stop being bitter. Don't be harsh. Don't call your wife honey or dear and then turn around and act like vinegar. We are to be seeking out, as Paul talks about to the the church in Corinth, seek to find out how to please your wife. And likewise, the wives to the husband. We don't own each other's body anymore in the marriage union. Get to know her. Sit down and talk with her. Pray with her. Don't be harsh to your wives. Don't be embittered against them. And this is a command that is a follow-up command, and it qualifies the first one by giving a reason for obeying the first one. And what I mean is, husbands, if you don't love your wives as Christ loves the church, sooner or later, your marriage and your relationship with her will become an irritant. And if your marriage relationship, if your relationship with your wife has become an irritant, you'll begin to view your wife as the cause of your problems. Brothers, loving our wives is not some arbitrary expectation for those who have this join-the-club-of-a-Christian-community ideal. This is an extension of what you, your, you yourselves have become in Christ Jesus. And even though Paul does not inscribe an explicit repetition of in the Lord here, there is every reason to see that it is being implicitly carried over for us to heed as well. If not in the Lord, 
You'll view your wife as the cause of your frustrations, your unhappiness, the reason why you're not what you want to be. You'll view her as the reason why you are doing what you don't want to do. And you'll become embittered against her if you do not love her as Christ loves the church. Your marriage and your relationship will become harsh. What will this look like if not in the Lord? Emotionally, you'll start checking out. No involvement. You detach yourself from her and other things. Verbally, even lashing out with words. Beating her down mentally. And God forbid, physically. You may eventually manifest it physically, even striking out. And as horrible as this is to bring up, It may be a reality where the frustration is so high that it pours into something physical. It seems to be happening more and more in the world around us. If this is happening, men, you must repent, and I mean now, before the Lord. And sisters, if this is happening in your marriage, you need to seek the help of the authorities that God has put in order, the police, and you need to come to your elders. But our love, our nurturing and cherishing of our wives must be found in the Lord and can only be properly found in the Lord. I want to read Ephesians 5.25 and following for us, brothers. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We see, oh, how Christ has given to us such a golden example, such such a portrait of his love, such a practice and teaching for us to lay hold of, to receive, to imitate, as he alone is the paragon of our holiness. He is our, our teacher and our strength in living this out in true humility. We are to be husbands to our wives as he is the husband to his church. And this is with a special, affectionate, selfless love. How? He prays for her. He lifts her up before the throne of grace. He loves her with a constant love, an enduring love, not varying in his affections toward her. Oh, his displays may vary. That's fine. Your display of affection may vary, but the affection itself is the same. It should be the same. Our love should prize her and delight in her as he delights in his church and rejoices over her. Our love should instruct her in the gospel truths with her in searching out him of whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that await for us together to be discovered. Brothers, if if we wonder and are in awe at the great love of Jesus toward his bride, let me ask you, are you imitating it? In your, in our most basic, precious, and practical relationships is the rule and measure of your love 
even as Christ loves the church. I want to close by reading one more scripture. You can turn there with me, 1 Peter 3. Just to put a capstone on this. I love Peter's perspective here. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And to sum up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we see our daily desperate need of your grace, of your headship, of your rule and reign in our hearts, so that in in our relationships that we have, Lord, with you and with the church body and with one another as husband and wife, and even within the family, Lord, you may be honored, you may be glorified that that the, the godly holy order that you have ordained may be reestablished, may be restored, may flourish, may be fruitful. May there be a a, a multiplication, Father, in the fruit and the graces of the Spirit of God at work in our marriages, in our lives, in our relationships, Father. For apart from you, we can do nothing. But we thank you, Father, that you are the God of doing the impossible. And I pray that even here, present today, in the relationships, the difficulties, the strifes that will occur because we are still imperfect beings that have the remaining sin in our flesh that wars against the Spirit, I pray, Father, for an abundance and outpouring of your Spirit and your grace in the marriages, in the lives of man and wife, and even those, Father, yet to be married, prepare their hearts for this, to see properly their function, their role, Lord, as as wife and, and as husband. And again, all of this to bring glory to your name, to bring honor to what you have done to us and for us and through us and in us because of your gospel work. So, Lord, make make this a daily reality. May the spiritual truths hit the rubber of the road in our daily lives in the midst of the mundane. May we know your glorious presence and work and lordship. We ask all these things and give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.